Good morning, Sanctuary. You can grab a seat. Um, I am more thrilled to be here than I know how to tell you. Um, I love your church. Only time I've got to be here was for the Praxis Conference a few months ago. Um, but you feel like family to me for so many reasons. Um, one, I just think this is a church that fulfills its name. It is a sanctuary. It is a safe place. I feel that. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of love here to begin with, but I just really can't say enough this morning about what it means to be here with Pastor Ed, as long uh, well, and new friends of mine too, Blaine Bartell and uh, Cody, who does such an amazing job leading us into the presence of the Lord this morning was beautiful. And uh, so, yeah, you can give him a hand. That's, uh, that's appropriate. Um, so good for my soul. But your church is special to me. Um, the nicest thing I could say about Pastor Ed, and I've said this a number of times uh, behind his back, I do mean it. I think he is the wisest person that I know personally. I honestly think that. Did not pay me to say that. I just think he's a uniquely wise, weathered, honest soul. He'll say anything. Do you know that's true about Pastor Ed? I just love, like, he is so, he is so real, and he draws so much out of me, and he's a person that, uh, frankly, I look to for direction. He speaks into my life. Um, we got connected, as he mentioned initially, through Dr. Chris Green, who's one of my best friends, uh, one of the people I love most in the world. When I met Chris, I felt like I had met this long lost, like almost like biological brother. It is incredible, um, just the kind of connection we have. And of course, he's told me such beautiful things about you. So it's special to be here for so many different reasons. And uh, I'm just grateful, very grateful to have this opportunity to share with you. Um, quick disclaimer, this message is very testimonial. Uh, I have such deep roots in the Pentecostal tradition, it seems to be all I know how to do is to speak out of the depths of whatever the Holy Spirit's doing in me. So a lot of story, a lot of things that are new to me that I'll submit to your discernment, and we will see what happens. I do want to read a, a scripture to you, and in just a moment we'll pray. But um, it, it's, just, it's very important because I do love this church so much from afar. I want to share some encouragement with you, and I wanted to bring... Um, something that I hope would, would really encourage. So I hope this, this verse will, will do that. Matthew 23, verse 15. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Amen. <laughs> Doesn't that just warm your heart? You cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I would encourage you to use this in casual conversation whenever anyone frustrates you. Not only are you a son of hell, but you make people twice the son of hell as yourselves. It's a really, really lovely verse. There is apparently a kind of religion. There is a, a, apparently a form, a system of religion that is literally so toxic that you were worse off for having received it than you were without it. There is a way of thinking about God. There is a way of um, thinking about the world. There is a kind of religious system that literally is so detrimental that it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't cause a little bit of damage. It actually sets you back. And that's the kind of religion that Jesus names here is a, is, is a way of thinking about and allegedly worshiping God that actually sets people back even further. And I don't think the idea is that it makes people even meaner than, you know, say the Pharisees were that Jesus encountered. I think the idea is that this system is so dangerous that once it's introduced to a person, it, it, it just, it, once it's there, like in the roots, they're so, it's a religion that's motivated by judgment over mercy. 
the story of Scripture as it emerges is always the story of love triumphing over mercy. But this is the kind of religion where judgment actually wins over mercy. And when that kind of religion is in, in the roots of who you are and what you are, everything about that is so dead that it infects everything else. And there is a kind of deadness that comes from this that actually leaves us off worse than we were before we encountered. Let me, let me pray for you for just a moment. Lord, I need grace. We need illumination. We need you to open up our eyes and our hearts. We need revelation. So I pray very simply that there would be not a transaction today of information, but truly a revelation that comes from your spirit, of your heart, and of your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I grew up um, hillbilly Pentecostal, I like to say. My grandmother, who was this wonderful, wonderful woman of God, was my biggest role model and influence. My grandfather was a minister who died when I was three, but um, she stayed around, um, and she did for years now, but really, really shaped my life. And she lived on the old Church of God State campground, where I would go and spend most of my days during the summer. And those for me were some of the most magical times in my life, was just being with her there. Every day she would make uh, tang. Um, y'all know anything about Tang in Tulsa? Tang in Tulsa. Uh, she made fried cornbread, and we would watch The Price is Right uh, every morning. I mean, like, that's a grandma for you right now. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. And I, I never will forget this one day. I think I was about eight. Um, the TV went out, so she called the cable TV repairman. And when he came over, I mean, I'm just, I was this kid who was just so focused on um, religion and things of God and who I'm supposed to be and terrified of judgment, by the way, in every conceivable form. The first scriptures I memorized, nobody taught me to do this. I kind of, this was self-taught. Were all scriptures about judgment because I was so terrified. I wanted to understand these texts to make sure that I didn't get on the wrong side of them. So for example, uh, one of the first uh, passages of scripture that I remember memorizing was from Hebrews where it says, for if we willfully sin after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for our sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. I could go on with this. You know, he who died without mercy with two or three witnesses, trampling the blood of the Son of God underfoot. One of the first passages that I learned. And uh, so I was thinking about these things all the time. I was always thinking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And certain I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I once made fun of a healing evangelist, like kind of how he did things. And I thought, oh, I've made fun of the Holy Spirit. So now... I am damned forever, all those kinds of things. And uh, this, this day in particular, I thought I had this, what I thought was a prompting. I don't know now. It was like, I felt like I should share my faith with this man. And you have to understand my, my grid, my religion was so much about shoulds and oughts. And it was so much, there was so much threat to it um, that for me, this wasn't, the stakes were always just super high. Like it was like, you know, not just that it would be a good opportunity to share my faith. I must share my faith with this person because in a single moment of disobedience, you know, that would be enough to completely undo my own relationship with the Lord. So all, all these stakes are high. So cable repairman comes, I strike up a conversation with him that was incredibly awkward. I'm eight and he's an adult and I'm trying to ask him questions about his life. Never quite got enough nerve to talk to him about Jesus. Like I, I just couldn't bring myself there. I was just a little bit too intimidated to quite step all the way into this thing. So when he left, I was completely devastated because in my mind, I'm thinking, 
what are the probabilities now that sometime between now and whenever else he would hear the gospel, he could get in a car wreck, he'd get in a car wreck on the way home. And if he did, not only will he go to hell, but he will not share the gospel with the person he was supposed to share the faith with, who was then going to go and be a missionary to the deepest, darkest tribe in Africa where the Bible has not yet been translated. So now not only will he go to hell, but there's a whole tribe that's going to go to hell because this didn't happen. You see what I'm saying? It's like, I'm being very literal about this. For me, it's like there's a chain reaction of events. If I'm disobedient, then that will set out this, this sin chain reaction throughout the world that has all these implications. So, I, I mean, I was, I was so upset. I went in my grandmother's bedroom, and I remember throwing myself across the bed and just weeping. I mean, I was weeping. And my grandmother comes in and asked me what was wrong. And I told her, I was like, Grandmother, I know I was supposed to share my faith with this man, and I just couldn't do it. And I quoted back to her words from the prophet Ezekiel. I said, I know now his blood is going to be on my hands on the day of judgment. That's what I said to her. His blood will be on my hands. Now, there's a reason that we think this way, you know, because oftentimes in church, my experience has been, we talk a lot about the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. We kind of lure people in with this New Testament message of free grace. But then we coerce them to do the things that we feel like they ought to do by way of Old Testament threats. So it becomes like, hey, you know, you share your faith or else people, you know, bring a friend next Sunday or else their blood might be on your hands. Or uh, this is, you know, again, all free grace, but make sure you tithe because if you don't, God will withdraw his hand of protection and people in your family will get cancer because you do not tithe. Is this, I mean, this is, this is, this is how we think about things. There is no um, scientific data to back this up, by the way. I hope George Barna does a survey, but I want to contend with you, by the way, that there is probably no difference in the cancer rates between tithers and non-tithers. I'm just saying, I don't think, I don't think that's how that works. I do think there may be a difference in, like, constipation between givers and non-givers. <laughs> Thank you, sanctuary. <laughs> but I don't think there's a difference in cancer rates. Like, I don't think this is how God works, if the ultimate revelation of God is in Jesus and the way I understand it to be. But this, this is how we try to maneuver people. My, my grandmother was incredibly sweet about this. And she said, I'll never forget this. She was just so gentle. She said, Jonathan, that's not how the Lord is. This man's blood is not on your hands. You know, like, think of it this way. She said, whenever you have a chance to share your story, it's always a blessing. There's a blessing that comes in sharing your faith. So I feel like when I miss an opportunity to share my story, uh, I feel like I miss out on a blessing, but that's all. You just miss out a blessing. Like, you, there's no kind of judgment for this. It took, me, it took me a long time, even after she told me this, to convince myself that I wasn't going to be forever held responsible now for um, this man not hearing the gospel that day. So the, these things in me run very, very deep. And it's why I feel like I, I, I kind of in an insider way am able to understand something of the kind of religion that Jesus describes that actually leaves you worse off. Because once again, the, the, the programming is so deep. All this becomes so intuitive and so intrinsic that it becomes almost impossible to override those settings. So then I'm told about the love of God and that I'm supposed to want God out of my own free response of love to him. But somehow for me, even those invitations are always perceived as a kind of threat because that's the way I first understood these things is that God's kind of holding a gun to my head saying, do this or else. 
love me or else. Doesn't that, by the way, work beautifully well in your own relationships? If you want to get somebody to fall in love with you, that is absolutely the best way to do it. I'm so in love with you. If you don't love me reciprocally, if you don't love me back, I will condemn you and I will judge you. You don't love me enough. You know, and like just challenge your spouse, whatever. You're not loving me enough. And see if that doesn't just generate all sorts of warm feelings to you. To kind of shame them because you don't feel adequately loved. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And yet there, there's a way that, that, that we think that somehow this is how God works and how the love of God works. Um, there have been a lot of things to happen to challenge that programming in me. And I want to share a couple stories with you. Again, this is really hot off the presses. Uh, I've had a few experiences, especially in the last few months, that certainly felt to me like the Lord. Um, I don't believe that every coincidence has to be God. I don't want to overline those things. And yet, um, I do believe that there is sometimes a kind of synchronicity to how certain things happen and how we encounter certain ideas that, you know, I, I take as being uh, very much the Lord. I, I think often about Augustine's testimony of hearing a voice say, take up and read it, take up and read it. And then he reads this particular passage of scripture that changes his life. Um, I, I've had a few of those experiences in particular where it seems like I just get the right book in the right moment. And it's very, it's very strange. Um, a, a few months ago, this happened and it was the day after um, I had been in church at an, an Episcopal church that I uh, uh, attend, which I know might seem weird to you talking about my Pentecostal roots and heritage, but I am very confused. So I attend Episcopal church and <laughs> when, um, that particular, that particular morning, they were reading the text from the lectionary. Now you've got three lengthy texts and, uh, they, they're reading the, they were doing a reading about the story of Joseph and there was something strange that happened. Like in my tradition, the only way I know that the Holy Spirit is underscoring something in the text is if in reading it is if you get very loud. You know that's what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing. But, you know, all these texts are read kind of monotone the same way. Uh, in fact, the sermon that day didn't refer back to the Old Testament text. He only preached from the gospel lesson. But when the, the reading from Joseph, uh, the story of Joseph from Genesis came, there's this particular verse that just mentions you know, how Joseph is thrown into the well by his brothers. And when that text was read, it was like a kind of electricity that I felt. There was something electric that happened. It was like, kind of like a shock. Um, I feel like there's been so much that God has been saying to me about descent and this idea that sometimes the way up is, is kind of going down and that had been coming at me from all different directions. And there was something that morning in particular of just the image of Joseph being thrown into the well was somehow really powerful for me. And I felt like there was something in that. But again, nothing else was said about this in the service. So you kind of put it on the shelf, move on. So anyway, the next day, um, late that morning, I decided to go to the Cracker Barrel for breakfast. This is how you know I'm not making the story up is why would I, you know, I would say like I was at a coffee shop, but no, I was at the Cracker Barrel for pancakes <laughs> because when I depress, uh, I get really, really depressed. That's what I turn to is pancakes. Um, better than heroin, I suppose. Whenever I'm really depressed or I'm really happy, either one, I go to pancakes. Anyway, I'm in the Cracker Barrel, and I pulled this book off the shelf kind of last minute that I've heard good things about. But, you know, I have a lot of books like that just kind of sitting around. I don't get to. Uh, it's a book called Iron John by a poet named Robert Bly. And uh, hadn't read this book. I knew it was about men and maleness and masculinity. Knowing a lot more about it now, I'll set this much of it up for you. The, the central premise of the book is Bly tells this ancient myth about a little boy who's a prince 
who um, finds this cage in the woods where there is a wild man inside. And in addition to being a wild man, there's a golden ball that the prince wants. But he can't get to the golden ball unless he unlocks the cage and therefore lets the wild man out. You tracking with me so far? So if he's going to do that, he ha- the key is hidden under his mother's pillow. And he would have to steal the key from underneath his mother's pillow in order to unlock the cage to get the golden ball, thereby unlocking the wild man. This for him becomes this whole metaphor for speaking about masculinity and this sort of the, there being a kind of wildness that, uh, and, and really I think this is true to a point across genders, like as long as you attempt to kind of keep the things from the shadow side sort of locked away and you just sort of repress, deny, don't unlock things. You know, it's like the, the, there's this idea that the prince is not going to be able to really grow up um, as long as he's not able to unlock the cage, but he would have to steal the key from underneath his mother's pillow to get this. So that's a little bit about Iron John. I didn't know all that. I just flipped the book open, which I, I, I would want to make the disclaimer, does not always work. So just to be clear, there's no joke about this, right? Like you ask God to speak to you through the scripture and you, know, you flip it open and you flip to where it says that Judas hung himself flip a few pages and it's where Jesus says, go therefore and do ye likewise. Like that can't happen with this method is not foolproof. So I'm not, uh, you know, saying you should, you should always do this, but sometimes it happens. I flip the book open and this still blows my mind. The chapter in the book I flipped open to was called the road of ashes, descent and grief. And the first line that I read on the page, this is not a Christian book per se, says, it's not unlike the Old Testament story, something like this, of Joseph when he's thrown into the bottom of the well. And that becomes his metaphor, that becomes his image for talking about this path of descent. And I flip open to this, remembering the experience from the day before. And y'all, I just started weeping in the Cracker Barrel, which is extraordinarily embarrassing. I did. I really thought I had to excuse myself from the table. Like I was like, I was sobbing reading this because it was such a sense that there's something in this story that I needed, that this is something that God's saying to me, that this is, I'm reading what I need to read. I'm seeing things that I need to see. So there's something in that that's just deeply, deeply encouraging to fast forward until uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a similar experience. It was a Wednesday night. I went out for dinner alone and I brought a book with me that I also had not started. It's a book called broken open. And uh, same kind of deal. I was just sort of messing around, and I flipped the book open. And the first thing I read, this is well into the book, is she tells, this, uh, she tells a story uh, basically from a children's book called The Runaway Bunny. I didn't know anything about The Runaway Bunny. Um, who, who knows this story? Do, you, do y'all know, people know parents stuff? Okay, a few of you know about The Runaway Bunny. I didn't know about The Runaway Bunny. I can tell you that as soon as I even began reading this, I get all teary again. I don't go around crying all the time. Well, sometimes I do these days. I immediately get teary because, and by the way, I just, there are these moments, Ed, where I really realize just what a crazy person I sound like. And it's like, dear God, why do I say these things out loud to people in public? (laughs) But I'm already this far in. It's the third service, whatever. Um, I have a special thing about bunnies. I really do. I love bunnies. What? <laughs> there, 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 there's a reason for this. Like for me, bunnies are, um, I've always, I think they're so cute. And I've always thought of them as being superfluously beautiful. I do. <laughs> I'm in therapy. Don't worry. 
weekly. <laughs> Anybody who would talk about Ed as their spiritual director or mentor, right? It's like, it's so, there's so much craziness in the air. I was, but really I love bunnies. And there've been all these moments in my life when I'm dealing with something difficult and I will see a bunny and it will remind me of the goodness of the Lord. It will remind me of like, really, I'll be like riding my bike or something, a bunny in it, or at night it's happened. I'll see a bunny in the yard. And like, it reminds me of the goodness of the Lord. It happens. So I'm already sensitive to bunnies. <laughs> I'll be forever remembered as the really large man who came to our church and talked about bunnies. And um, I actually brought, since then, I have picked up a copy of the book, The Runaway Bunny. So I decided to bring this to you. And if it's all right with you, I wanted to share the story of The Runaway Bunny and see how it affects you. Um, I've heard Dr. Chris Green use so many quotes in messages that I thought were wonderful and led me to great books. And uh, if Chris ever hears this sermon, uh, I just want to say I will see your von Baltasar, and I will raise you runaway bunny, because I don't think Chris has read from this before. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I am running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. The pictures, by the way, are very wonderful in this book. I know you can't <laughs> wish I could pass it around. Um, if you become a fisherman, said the little bunny, I will become a rock on the mountain high above you. If you become a rock on the mountain high above me, said his mother, I will be a mountain climber, and I will climb to where you are. If you become a mountain climber, said the little bunny, I will be a crocus in a hidden garden. If you do, said his mother, I will be a gardener, and I will find you. Are you detecting a pattern that emerges in the runaway bunny? If you are a gardener and find me, said the little bunny, I will be a bird and fly away from you. If you become a bird and fly away from me, said his mother, I will be a tree that you will come home to. Really lovely little book. If you become, uh, if you become a tree, said the little bunny, I will become a little sailboat and I will sail away from you. If you become a sailboat and sail away from me, said his mother, I will become the wind and blow you where I want you to go. If you become the wind and blow me, said the little bunny, I will join a circus and fly away on a flying trapeze. If you go flying on a flying trapeze, said his mother, I will be a tightrope walker and I will walk across the air to you. If you become a tightrope walker and walk across the air, said the bunny, I will become a little boy and run into a house. If you become a little boy and run into a house, said the mother bunny, I will become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. Shucks, said the bunny. I might just as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. And so he did. Have a carrot, said the mother bunny. And that, my friends, is the end of the runaway bunny. Aren't you glad I came to Sanctuary to share that with you? I do think it's a beautiful book, and I'm being a little playful now, but I mean, when, I, when she's just talking about the story, I, I, w- I start crying because for me, it's so how I want to experience the love of God right now. I, like, I love this idea of the love of God relentlessly pursuing us. The way that David describes when he says, even if I take up the wings in the morning and flee to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, you know, you, the, 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 the love that hunts us down, like I love that so much. And when I first started reading this, I just knew that's what God wants to say to me is I need to be reminded of the relentless pursuit of the Lord. So I'm, all, I, I'm once again crying in a restaurant. 
And then I read a couple pages more where she tells about how she read this book to her two sons. And she said the first son that she read it to uh, was really excited by the book. Like he loved it. He loved the, the fact that the mother bunny will chase the little bunny no matter where he goes. Like he thought that was beautiful. Wanted his mom to read the story over and over again. She had a second son who she said didn't like the book and would get really frustrated by it. And he would say, Mom, why won't the mother bunny just let the little bunny do what he wants to do? And so she said, like, when she would read the story, he would cheer on the little bunny to actually get away (laughs) and would invent new scenarios in which he imagined that the little bunny would actually be able to escape the mother. And so she said, like, she'd be reading the book, and when the little bunny is devising these tactics, he would actually shout, run away, bunny, like cheering the bunny on to get away from his mom. And as she goes on uh, and talking about this book, then she describes her own interactions with the poet Robert Bly and his book, Iron John. (laughs) Strangely enough, my life is so weird these days. Again, I'm weird all the time, but especially these days. And she says that when she first read Iron John, I had no idea this was coming together, uh, and you didn't either apparently, Uh, she she said she didn't like the book because she, she didn't like this idea of the boy having to steal the key out from under the pillow. That was kind of a, a, you know, a scandal to her. So she didn't love it in that way. But she talked about how the older she got and as her sons grew up, how much she came to understand that. And this idea that love has to give a certain amount of space and boys have to be able to grow up. And um, she just talks about her son's journey in this way. And she ends with this little passage I wanted to share with you as well, where she says... I'm as close now to my sons as many of my friends are to their daughters. Other friends with sons report the same thing. I tell you this so that the parents of teenagers can keep hope alive through the demanding years when the bunnies leave the nest and enter the dangerous world. If you find yourself holding tight to your children long past appropriateness or helpfulness, perhaps it would help you if you took down an old copy of The Runaway Bunny. Sit on the couch next to your stunned son or daughter and read the book aloud. Only this time, change the words. Read it like this. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I am running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will let you go, for you are grown now. I trust you to find your way in the world. Run away, bunny. (laughs) And that's how she concludes this section. For me, This is such an interesting intersection because I think there's something very true and very descriptive about the image of God's love pursuing us wherever we run. I do think that there's something about the love of God uh, that just absolutely will not stop pursuing us no matter where we go or what we do. I totally believe that. But I also think there's something very true about this perspective on the story, that there is this way that love, because love at its core is non-coercive. Love does not force its own way. That love also has a lot to do with letting go. That love has a lot to do with, um, with, with giving room, with giving permission to, to take certain kinds of journey. There's something, there, there's something about the love of God that I think is represented in this too. I think this is embedded in the story of God from the very beginning. In this ancient uh, Hebrew book of origins that we call Genesis, that first story in the garden, you know how it goes. The, the, God says, you can eat anything you want to from the garden except the fruit of this one tree. And when Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, I always saw this as like, 
this must be some kind of a great surprise to God. You know, like then he kind of has to come up with a backup plan. In my mind, it's like then the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit get together and huddle. And the Father basically says like, okay, never seen this defense before. I don't know what to do. Um, Jesus... I'm going to send you to earth and uh, you're going to run a route to the cross. And it's like, there's a backup plan, you know, because we didn't see this coming. But I think that really misses the point of the story. I think actually, whenever anybody reads that story intuitively, you know, they're going to eat from the tree in the same way that if you, those of you, again, I don't have kids, but I, I hope this bears out. If you tell your child, you can open any box in the house, except for this one, you tell me which box they're going to open. You know, this is, this is the human story. There's a kind of rite of passage in that, of having to be able to make these choices and given room to make these kinds of choices, even if they're, even if they have negative consequences. I've been thinking a lot about the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, where of course the prodigal asked his father, for his inheritance early. This is the inheritance that will only rightfully be his upon death. The father would not have to acquiesce to give him the inheritance and do this. It's a complete insult to him. And yet he gives him the money knowing that he's going to go out and spend it poorly on dissolute living, to quote the text. He, He still gives him the money. And there's no account in that that he gives him a speech or tells him all the reason why it's a bad idea. I mean, he freely gives him the money. And I know this is not generally the main point we want to focus on the prodigal son, but I keep thinking about that. Why does the father grant the request? Why does he give him the money knowing that some of these choices may be harmful? And yet I think once again, this becomes an image of the love of God that does in fact always leave the back door open. Uh, This God who's always in the business of, of, of liberation. He's the one who's opening up cage doors. He does not cage you in and tell you, you have to stay here at all costs, and I won't let you go, I won't let you run away, I won't let you, that's just not how how it works. The reason for me that this is so profound right now, not because, and I think this this is such a tension, right? Like, not because I think that what we need to hear is, so go do whatever it is that you want to do, but there, on some level, I think we only do what we want to do anyway. And I think that the very moment that we tell someone, right, like, love God or else. Make the right choice or else. Do this or else. Strangely enough, the very moment that we say that, we keep them from being able to choose to do it. The very moment that we say you have to, then it's no longer a choice. The very moment that we say you must do it this way, then there's no longer a choice. And I think that's what's so dangerously subversive about this kind of toxic religion is that in the process of saying you should, you must, you ought, we strangely insulate people from the love of God so that even if they, there was something in them that wants to choose God, they don't feel like they really can because they feel like they don't have a choice. I don't know if that's making sense. But if you're told that you don't have a choice, then you never really choose. And I'm convinced that this is why it is so common within the church. For some of you, everything I'm saying is utterly foreign. Some of you had an adult conversion. You came to know Jesus after already 
having a certain kind of journey with ups and downs, and it's been wonderful to be with him ever since, and you don't get this at all. But, I mean, I just see this repeatedly. Those of us who are deep products of the church, especially those who have internalized a fear-based system where our understanding of God is coercive, harsh, all of those things, there is this way that we always seem to end up worse off, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't produce the results that we want. When you read the story of the prodigal son, is the elder son really who you want to be? Is he somehow better off? The prodigal at least comes to the end of himself through these choices in a way that makes him want to come home. By the end of the story, the elder son has never left the house and is so much further away from his father, living under the same roof than the prodigal son ever got. Because the prodigal son went all the way through. The prodigal son opened the door to the cage. He, was, he, he had to deal with some demons. He had to confront himself. If those things are merely repressed or denied, they become far more powerful. And, and, and then the, the religion that we have is not a religion of, of freedom. It's a religion of pushing things down. So we push things down in the name of Jesus. We push things down in the name of religion. We're never able to confront what's really in us. We're we're never able to confront God in an authentic way because everything that is in us is is such a system of shoulds and oughts. I wonder at this point in my life, I don't want to, I don't want to anthropomorphize God. I don't want to make him more um, human than he is. I know God is very different from us, but this is what I wonder. I wonder if there is not because to be honest with you, when I, when in praying about these things, this is something of what I sense in that deep kind of spirit knowing is that there's a kind of open wound in the heart of God, because this is a God who's always extending love with no strings attached. Here's a God who is always reaching out to us. And, and the very, uh, the, the very meaning of the cross of Jesus is that God does not use his power to coerce us, but instead lays his life down in a way that draws us. I think that's the meaning of the cross. God is laying down his life. It is not God coming with the sword, putting it to our necks, saying, you must follow me, but a God who through beauty, through his own self-sacrificial love, makes himself available to us. I wonder if there is not some kind of an open wound in the heart of God himself to have all of these sons and daughters who are never able to enter into that invitation because every, every time God invites, we perceive it as threat. Every time God initiates, every time God makes overtures that are about love, nothing but love, we can't receive it that way because we're always getting this through the lens of must, should, ought, that there's some level of threat to all of this. Um, I, I know that what people will perceive as being the dangerous thing about teaching something like this is, well, what if then people just do what they want? What if they don't choose God in this way? Um, I'd say again, first of all, if there's not a choice, (laughs) then you never really do choose. But you know, I'm, I'm really convinced of this. I do believe that the reason we have so many warnings in scripture about sin, about behavior is because it's self-destructive. And I'm, and I'm convinced that, you know, the wages of sin is death. There's, it's intrinsic to these choices. We, I've really come to believe that we, are, we suffer much more, uh, we, we suffer by our sins more than we suffer for our sins, you know. Um, God wants to save us from ourselves. 
I don't think the story of Jesus is about God saving us from God. We didn't need to be saved from God. We needed to be saved from ourselves. And that's what the story of the cross and resurrection, that's what the faith is essentially about. But so long as we understand it as God is the one who's threatening, that God is the one who's out to get us, the best way I know how to explain it is like this. I'm, I'm convinced that the sort of system of shoulds and oughts, I think there is a kind of place for this in development, but even if you think about Scripture as a whole, the first books of the Bible that we have, the first genre, right, is law. Law is essentially what you get first. And in the giving of the law, it is all rules and regulations. If we, if we wanted to boil it down, law is always right, like, don't touch the hot stove. No matter what, do not touch the hot stove because I don't want you to get burned. And I think there's a place for that. There's a container for that. But it's a very early stage of faith development. And if that's where you live your whole life, is thinking that the reason that, you're, that you would make certain choices, the reason that you would attempt to follow God in a certain way, is because if you don't, then he's going to get you. What happens is I think our development gets stunted. We don't ever really grow. We don't ever really mature. We're never able to experience deep heart transformation because that's just not where God intends for us to live. There is a, there is a time and a place where the God who will chase us to the ends of the earth does say to us, run away, bunny. Do what you need to do. Not as a way then of saying again, so go out and self-destruct like that's the idea. But, and Ed, you said this beautiful kind of wrapping up the, the first service. There is this way that even when we come to the end of ourselves and the end of our choices, that that can lead to an authentic opening with God. The point is he doesn't force us to do anything. And that night when I was sitting in the restaurant, what I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me in a way that was very deep and that I'm still not over was this sense of like, Jonathan, for the first time in your life, I really would like you to choose me. I'm not making you choose me. You don't have to, but I really want you to. And there was something about that that was so heartbreaking and disarming. The funny thing about it is the more I get to know about this God, the more I feel like he does reveal himself to me, the more that I want him, which is how love works. The more that God exposes his heart, it's like, why, why would I want anything except for you? What could I want more than you? What out there is better than you? But strangely enough, that for me has come on the tail end of run away, bunny. I think I'm able to receive a revelation of the love of God in a different way, precisely because I don't feel like it's coming with threat. It, there's this sense now that I'm able to make my own choices in that way and that God is the one who always leaves the back door open as opposed to once again locking us in and saying, you can't even think about anything different. I'm, uh, I'm going to wrap this up in just a minute. I haven't told this story in, in, the, in any service so far, but there's a film. I don't think it's come um, out on DVD or whatever digital download yet. <laughs> How are we supposed to say those things now? But it's called Calvary. Amazing film. Most powerful film I've seen in a long time. And it's about this Irish priest. Uh, he has essentially a parishioner in confessional who threatens his life. And what he does with it, there's all kinds of things about the story I think are extraordinary. But there's one particular thing that just continues to haunt me. By the end of the film, I won't give anything away, uh, but by the end of the film, 
um, you kind of see the impact that this priest, this character has had in all these different lives. And one of the, one of the subplots that I don't think is too critical to, to tell you, and I don't know, spoilers I think are okay in service of the kingdom anyway, probably, <laughs> but um, we're going to use one. There's this other priest who's a young priest that is kind of a fundamentally unlikable character because he's so fearful, he's so afraid, and that makes him do everything in a fearful kind of pandering way. He's always trying to please everybody else, always trying to make sure he's doing the right thing, but he's kind of uptight. It makes him sort of obnoxious. He's not, he doesn't react to anything in an authentic way. Like there's nothing genuine about him because he feels like this is the life he has to live. So he's always afraid of, you know, people's disapproval, always pandering. You just get this sense, this character, he just makes you sad because he's always putting on an image in order to kind of do the right thing. And there's a scene right towards the end of the film Whereas we're seeing the impact of this priest on other people's lives, we see this man, and he's not in the priesthood anymore. He's sitting in a library, and he's reading Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, in street clothes. (laughs) And it's such an interesting scene because it's clearly intended to be hopeful. Um, From a faith perspective, it does not seem, uh, on uh, on the surface at least, like a hopeful thing that this priest who's so locked in by his own fear is now no longer in the priesthood, but that he's reading this famous book by an atheist and clearly like confronting these kinds of things. But it's clearly presented in a hopeful way. I I was so moved by it because I had a sense. It's like, oh, wow, now this character is on an authentic journey. (laughs) Now he's dealing with his own doubts and questions. Because I'll just say it one more time. That really is the way it always works. I hope you know that. I can't question these things about my faith. I can't look at these things. I can't look at these things about myself. The things, the monsters that you bury in that way will rise up and eat you, friends. That's how it works. Everything that we suppress, everything that we push, it just comes back up later in a horrible way. And and you really have this sense with this character that he's going someplace good now. Whatever happens with his faith it could be real now. It's not going to be facade anymore. And if any of this seems muddled, I think at the end of the day, that for me is what all of this is about, is that faith is always involves a real thoroughgoing interior transformation that cannot happen if we don't feel like we have a choice. And I just wonder what it would look like for some of you if you were able to receive God's voice in such a tender, divine way to say, I want you to choose me. And of course, I believe the things that God has for us are always for our good and for our best and for our blessing. We're never going to regret that. But he gives us space to decide for ourselves what we want. And until we understand that we have a choice, then we don't really choose God at all. We just operate on these same default settings. What would it look like? Keep in mind the language in 1 John Perfect love cast out fear. And I come back to that over and over again. Perfect love cast out fear. He who fears has not yet been made perfect in love. That is a low-level form of consciousness. It is a low form of faith that will not sustain you long. And I can tell you experientially, the process of breaking out of those fear-based systems in which all the reasons were clear, I won't do this because if I do it, God will fry me or whatever, moving from that into a a way of being with God in the world where everything is motivated by love is really, really scary 
because you put your weight down here in a way where everything seems really concrete and clear and making that from here into this territory, we're like changing out foundations (laughs) is not a quick or easy process. It's painful. And you wonder, is this this going to work? What's happening to me? And yet I think this is, this is always the movement of the spirit taking us deeper into the heart of God as he wants to say it like this one more time. And I'm really done. Everything in us that is born out of fear is at its root corrupt and it, ha- and it always leads to death. Those things in us have to die. The things that are motivated by fear have to die and have to be replaced by this life-giving love, this river of the love of God that does pursue us and that does invite us rather than coerce us. That only that which is established on love, built on love, is able to sustain us and transform us. Let me pray for you. Um, Lord, if any of this is remotely unhelpful, then somehow strike it. But I don't really feel like it's unhelpful. I don't even feel like even if it stirs up um, something in us that causes us to struggle, this feels so much to me like you that here you are as the God who's always reaching out to us, always pursuing us with your affection. And you're willing to do anything You're willing to do anything to draw us close to yourself, except force us, except coerce us, except change our minds. All powerful as you are, these are limits you seem to have placed on yourself that you will not override our will. You won't override our own capacity to choose Lord, I just want to just sit for a moment in the brokenness of your own heart for your people, the kind of brokenness we get in books like the prophets. Lord, I just think there's, there's something heartbreaking for you when you've gone so far to love your sons and daughters, and yet we still feel like you're, you're holding a gun to our head. We still feel like you're the monster luring us into bed. We still feel like that there's all kinds of strings attached. And I just pray this morning for a revelation of the love of God that will literally melt away every foundation that is rooted in fear rather than love. I pray for a revelation of yourself that will cause all of our shoulds and oughts, all of these fear-based structures to just begin to collapse and that you would replace it with something new. I pray that even starting with the invitation to this Eucharistic table today, that we would receive that as a, as a real invitation into your heart, that we would receive that, Lord, not none of this as coercion, but all the ways that you woo us gently and softly. Thank you for being the God that always gives us a choice. I just pray now that you would allow us to see you in such a way that rather than seeing a God that is impossibly 
awful somehow that we would be able to behold a love that we don't want to resist. To behold a love that just always summons us closer. Allow your perfect love to cast out all fear. And I pray that in this house, that in this place, that no one, in the same way it was for the prodigal, would be able to work for you in some kind of a business partnership as some kind of a hired hand, but that truly, Lord, we would only know you as sons and daughters. That is what you want for us to relate to us as sons and daughters. Let us receive the spirit of sonship whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Make it so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pastor Ed. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.